Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Jason. And today we're talking about the British race car driver, fighter pilot, and transgender pioneer, Roberta Cow. We have some content warnings before we start this episode. The major content warning, unsurprisingly, is for discussion of transphobia as well as internalized transphobia throughout the episode. We will also be discussing homophobia, intersexism, and the appropriation of intersex issues, and will include outdated language to refer to intersex people. There are also going to be brief mentions of World War II, Roberta's experiences in a POW camp, brief mentions of starvation, violence against animals, suicidal ideation, drug and alcohol abuse, and people being outed in the press. If any of that sounds like something that you don't want to listen to, please feel free to skip this episode and listen to a different episode. Before we start talking about Roberta's life, I also wanted to talk, as we often do, about the sources for this episode, because it is a particularly convoluted time this time around. Roberta herself wrote a memoir that was originally serialized in a magazine in the 1950s, and this is pretty much our major source on Roberta's life, which is tricky because it is full of lies. What sort of magazine are we talking? I don't really know the vibe of the magazine, to be honest. I would assume it's kind of like a bit of a trashy tabloid magazine Uh because it's interested in publishing a sensationalized story about Britain's first transsexual, but like that's just an assumption. Yeah. To complicate matters further, there isn't actually any published biography of Roberta, but there are two biographies of Michael Dillon, who was a contemporary of Roberta's, and they both have significant sections on Roberta. The first was published by the journalist Liz Hodgkinson in 1980, and Hodgkinson knew Roberta personally, and that section of the book draws on conversations with Roberta and Roberta's own papers, as well as that memoir. So like so far so good i sense a bot coming however because of that very involvement with roberta hodgkinson was obliged to omit a lot of key information Mm -hmm. specifically to kind of uphold the lies that roberta told in her memoir which we will get into in more depth don't you worry okay the second biography is by another journalist pagan kennedy and it was published in 2007 and as far as i know did not have any direct input from roberta can i just ask before you go on any further when did Mm. roberta pass away 2011 oh Mm. so recent so she was alive but i don't think that she was involved with this biography at all but yeah it, it does still draw very heavily as you can imagine from hodgkinson's work but it was also able to include material that hodgkinson wasn't so although it's not as close to a primary source it is a more complete story of that chapter of roberta's life additionally there was a documentary made about michael and roberta in 2015 again drawing heavily from hodgkinson like hodgkinson appears in the documentary and it also is able to have like a more complete version of that story it doesn't include a lot of information that other sources don't but it is pretty neat in that it has like footage of them which isn't something that we get very often being a historical podcast and like i in particular don't really talk about 20th century figures that often with roberta we actually have a fair bit of footage of her because she was involved in like race car races (laughs) (laughs) car races it is like a bit of a sensationalist documentary though like as you can imagine it was called in britain something like sex change spitfire ace or something like that 
And then for the SBS here, it was called, like, the sex changes that changed history or whatever. Uh, okay. Uh, so, you know, like, that was kind of the general tone. Yeah, so with that over, let's get on to actually talking about Roberta's life. Roberta was born on April 8th, 1918, to a relatively upper-class family in Croydon, England. She had what she described as a strict religious and moral upbringing, which wasn't particularly fun, I suppose. Do you know what? Religion, you know, the Christians, <laughs> not specifically to be honest. I okay, think this is fine. probably in her memoir, but I don't remember. I just know that she had a nanny who was the daughter of a missionary and who was very into like Jesus. Uh, and yeah. Roberta didn't want to go to church, but did and resented this. And that's all I really know. Okay, cool. Yeah. When she got to school, she was quite a poor student. She was naturally left handed, but she wasn't allowed to write with her left hand. And the result was shockingly not that she was right-handed, but that she just couldn't write that well. <laughs> That's unsurprising, but I'm excited to see a fellow left-hander Hell on yeah. this podcast. She also was given glasses because she was long-sighted, but she tells us that she did eye exercises until her eyesight was, like, better than normal and she didn't need to wear glasses anymore. That's a real thing. Irene did that. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought that was a lie. No, it's true. Okay, well, there you go. Roberta was quite into mechanical things from a young age, and she wanted to drive and design race cars. That's cool. It is cool. She spent a lot of time in engineering workshops in her teens, and she was also a member of her school's motor club, whose members would, like, drive various cars around the school grounds, despite them all being too young to have driver's <laughs> licenses. And this was just not a problem at the time, apparently. I guess this was the early 20th century when yeah. they were less strict about cars, but also what? Yeah. In order to get practical experience working with race cars, she showed up to a racetrack in a pair of overalls with a bucket and just bluffed her way past the gatekeeper. And then once she was in, she just asked around until she found someone who wanted help. And then she was in. This is what our parents think getting a job is like when they're like, yeah. let's ring up some companies. That's true, actually. <laughs> You've just got to have gumption. Yeah. yeah. I do feel like Roberta had a lot of gumption. In 1936, at the age of 17, she started entering competitions racing cars because she can legally have a driver's license now and she started studying engineering at university college london she's doing really well so far yeah once the war broke out she decided that she wanted to join the air force however she had actually joined the raf as a pupil pilot in 1935 and done her initial training and then made the mistake of telling them that flying made her feel kind of nauseous <laughs> and so they invalided her out and she was declared unfit for service oh but she wants to be a pilot, but she gets sick when she flies. Yes. This doesn't ever truly go away. Okay. She just sort of deals with it. <laughs> so now that the war's broken out, she hassles the air ministry to take her on, and they refuse. And so she ends up enlisting in the Royal Army Service Corps instead and goes for training in January of 1940. Roberta found living in the barracks to be not that different from living in the boarding school environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, she disliked the lack of privacy, but generally gone on pretty well. She explained in her memoir that one of the golden rules of the army was to always look busy. So once she was caught <laughs> having like nothing to do and she had to peel potatoes for like a few weeks. And after that, she would always carry around a lot of documents and look <laughs> intent. <laughs> In May of 1941, she married Diana Margaret Zelma Carpenter, who oh. she had met at university and who she would have two daughters with. We don't have a lot of information about Diana. <laughs> I was going to say, that just happened so fast. Like, oh, she's married Diana now. Who's Diana? What's going on? She's married to Diana. Okay. Um, yeah, Diana had also studied engineering and did a little bit of car racing herself. But Roberta tells us, in spite of our mutual interests, I think we knew almost at once that the marriage was not going to be a happy one. 
And indeed, they weren't together for very long before Roberta was shipped off to Iceland as officer commanding heavy repair shops. Roberta was fascinated with the geysers and recalls a crop of banana trees that were growing in a greenhouse that was heated by a natural hot spring. That's so cool. I thought that was very neat as well. I was about to say, like, what? Bananas in Iceland? Yeah. Isn't that cool? In a thermal greenhouse that's sick as hell sick as hell overall however she found iceland to be very forbidding and bleak and she was frustrated by her time there she didn't feel like she was really like close to the action or doing much her own work was largely administrative so it's not really the kind of person she is she again turned her attention to getting into the raf and this time she just i think hassled them enough that they were like okay fine Well, I I guess also England in, you know, 1940 needed pilots more than they needed infantry. Look, that may be the reason. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So she appeared before the medical board and she was again tested for air sickness. So someone took her up in a plane and did a bunch of loops and stuff. And she said nothing about having any problems with air sickness at all and just kind of gritted her teeth and got through it and didn't throw up and it was fine. (laughs) Clearly she was capable of flight without it, like, being debilitating. Yeah. She just, like, felt like she was going to throw up throughout much of the following experiences, I guess. Yeah. I know with motion sickness in cars, like, people who get motion sickness as a passenger often don't get motion sickness as a driver. No, so, she gets motion sickness okay. still when she is flying the plane. Okay, I wasn't sure because, like, someone else took her up. I was like, maybe when she's flying, she actually is okay no. then. She might be better. I don't know. She talks a bunch about how, like... She tried a bunch of mental tricks to get over it, and eventually she kind of just got to the point where she could deal with it enough that it was fine, but she never fully got over it. It's crazy that she wanted to pilot. Yeah. Later, when she was reporting for duty, she had to do a high-altitude test as well, and she did not do well. Um, but when she got back to the base she was stationed at, they asked if she'd had the test, and she said yes. And apparently they just never followed up with if she had passed the test or if she'd done well. <laughs> and she was like, cool, and then she went off to war. <laughs> I guess they were pretty desperate. Yeah, I don't know where desperation ends and incompetency begins, but yeah. in any case, she reported for training and she learned to fly Tiger Moths, Miles Masters, and finally the Spitfires, which she was most interested in. Once she's trained, she's working stopping enemy aircraft who are trying to bomb Britain, and she recalls narrow escapes for her life in flying several times. So in 1944, she reported for duty with a fighter squadron and took part in the invasion of Normandy. When she went to war, she took a tiny vial of hot rod fuel on a chain around her neck that she wore under her flying jacket as a talisman, and she would, like, take it out and breathe in the center of the fuel because she just, like, loved it. She's not, like, getting high or anything, to be clear. She's just, like, inspiring herself. It's just funny to me that she's such a car person that she likes the smell of fuel. Yeah, well, she mentions as well in her memoirs that she took a, a girl she was dating to the racing track field and, like, she was standing near, like, the back end of a car being like, oh, that smells good. And the woman was like, can we move? It's, like, disgusting here. And she was kind of, like, instantly going to her, I was breaking up with this girl. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, she loves cars so much. So much. <laughs> this has got strong, like, horse girl vibes, but, yeah. like, car girl. Yeah, car yeah, girl. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what she is. Roberta drove into Paris with a few members of her squadron just after it was liberated. And she was involved in, like, a little bit of street fighting, but was mostly just there to see what just liberated Paris looked like and like had a fun time celebrating with the French. That's cool. Yeah. Roberta says little else of her time in Europe and and not that much about the more kind of unpleasant parts of the war. So we just kind of have a series of anecdotes like that. I feel like this is pretty common when people write memoirs that have like a bit about them being in the war, but Mm -hmm. about the war that they really play down. Yeah. That sort of thing. In late 1944, her aircraft was hit with flak and the engine failed. 
She was flying too low to parachute out and was in the plane when it crashed, but she survived. She was then taken prisoner by German soldiers and held in a farmhouse for a few days, during which time she was barely fed. An Austrian who was there was convinced that Germany was going to lose the war and was right. And <laughs> Spoilers. And smuggled her a little bit of stew, so she had that. He was a trombone player and as a return favor she wrote out some sheet music for him from memory of a tune called getting sentimental over you and she snuck in a few bars of colonel bogey as a little like screw you to the nazis (laughs) so that's the song that's parodied with that like hitler has only got one ball song yeah yeah so she sneaks that in so this guy will be playing trombone at the nazis with that in there (laughs) she got the gumption (laughs) she has it I love it. What does she play? Because she wrote out some sheet music. I assume she plays something. Uh, she plays the piano, I believe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's like one photo of her playing piano. Okay. She was moved around a few more times before she ended up at a POW camp, Stalag Luft 1. The prisoners were fed with meager German rations and what few Red Cross parcels managed to arrive, and they were therefore constantly starving and this constantly obsessed with food. She describes them sitting around and talking about meals that they'd had in the past and meals that they were planning to have in the future and just talking obsessively about food over and over again. During a particularly difficult period, they captured the camp cats and killed them and ate them raw. So there's that. Yeah, wow, that's that's pretty bad. Yeah. The prisoners also kept themselves busy with various activities, so they would play cards and learn from books, and they would put on little theatre productions and stuff like that. People organised lectures and classes. Roberta herself taught a class in automobile engineering. And... That's more or less how it went on until in early May of 1945, the camp was liberated by the Russians and they were flown home. After the war, Roberta found herself at a loss for what to do with her life. She tried a few failed business ventures and then she founded an automobile engineering business called Cal and Watson with a friend who I presume was called Watson. The business seems to do like pretty well. She was working on a design for a race car that she had thought of while in the POW camp, which was a three-stage supercharged flat 12-cylinder engine with Aspen rotary valves. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it was that. Roberta also flipped some houses and she was still racing cars. Cool. Yeah. Despite her seeming like relative success in life, Roberta was quite restless and unhappy at that time. As soon as she achieved a goal, she would immediately find that it didn't actually satisfy her and she would move on to a, a bigger goal she set for herself and just generally felt that her life was pretty pointless and empty. By 1948, she had separated from her wife and she decided to go and see a psychiatrist. In her own words, this is the result of those sessions. The biggest shock to my self-esteem was my discovery through these tests that my unconscious mind was predominantly female. The evidence of the test was far too forthright to be denied. I really want to know what the test was. Because, like, I mean, maybe she was kind of aware of this beforehand, but, like, the way she's worded that, it sounds like she didn't really know she was trans. And then she went to the psychiatrist and she was like... Oh, I'm a woman. And, and like, they did a, like, inkblot test, and they were like, it says trans. Yeah, like, yeah. I want to know exactly what oh, went we'll, down there. we'll come back to this, don't worry. Okay. Like, not this specifically, but definitely the way she presents this, we'll come back to. Okay. So this realization didn't bring Roberta happiness. She knew why she wasn't happy, but she didn't feel like she had any solution, so she continues to be unhappy. She considered suicide, and she turned to drugs and alcohol, but she didn't find any relief in them, and so, like, stopped doing that pretty quickly. One day she was playing squash with a friend and as they were changing afterwards, he commented, you know, you really ought to wear a brassiere. And the comment made her quote, decide to try and find out just how feminine I really was physically. 
So she went to go see a, well, what she calls a famous sexologist. So going back to her playing squash with this friend, does the friend know she's trans? Or? No, no one knows she's trans. Okay, so the friend just made just the says comments. This. Yeah. Okay. We'll come back to it. Okay. Yeah. So she goes and sees what she calls a famous sexologist. We have not identified this person. Who examined her and told her that her body as well as her mind was fundamentally female in some way. She had, quote, wide hips and narrow shoulders, pelvis female in type, hair distribution and skin female in type. My breast formation was examined and judged to be typically feminine, though very little developed. There seemed to be some degree of hermaphroditism present. How extensive the hermaphroditism was could not be decided without a more detailed examination and laboratory tests. There was a possibility that some of the internal organs might be female. So she wanted to know more about her body and she saw two endocrinologists, two gynecologists, a professor of anatomy and two general practitioners. And what they told her was that they were not surprised that her body was so feminine, but instead that she was even as masculine as she was, again affirming that her body was fundamentally a woman's body in some way. Roberta was therefore faced with living in a body that was, as she presents it, somewhere between the sexes at this point, and so had to make a decision about what to do, about whether to become male or female. She presented that in order to live as a man, she would have to take hormones and have surgery because her body would continue to feminize. And as her body was predominantly female, she decided that she was going to become a woman. So let's unpack that. (laughs) I'm glad you've got a step in here where we unpack that because there's a lot to talk about here. There really is. This is kind of the episode, frankly. So the general reaction to this story has been that it is a lie and I am inclined to agree. For what reasons? Well, let's go through that. Essentially, she's asserting that she's intersex. Yeah. She remains vague about a lot of her claims. So she implies that she has ovaries and she remains vague enough about having testicles that her memoir at least leaves room for that not being the case. But we know that she did have a penis and testicles. She would claim that she had XX chromosomes in an interview with the Sunday Times and also in other places. Yeah. And like, it is possible for someone to have XX chromosomes and a penis and testicles, but individuals with that particular intersex variation are infertile to the best of my knowledge. Mm -hmm. And Roberta had two children. Okay. I guess I should clarify why I think that that is the case. And that I read papers about like people who have a penis and testicles and who like went through male puberty and whatnot, but have XX chromosomes and the medical literature that I read of which I am not, necessarily able to interpret correctly because I am not a doctor Mm. said that like yeah this happens and like generally these people find this out when they try to have children because they are infertile Um, and like it it, you know did say that like people with a penis and testicles but XX chromosomes are infertile Okay. Yeah. Ah, so, like, that is where my understanding of that comes from. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that may not be universally true in the way that a lot of these things aren't necessarily universally mm. true because we have such limited understanding of intersex people generally because there just hasn't been yeah, for sure. proper research done into it. And then also because there are relatively so few of them. Mm-mm. Her claims about her body and her transition are contradicted by at least one of her doctors. Who just says, like, no, that's not what I said. And there's just sort of various inconsistencies throughout her claims in her memoirs. So there's also the claim that her female secondary sex characteristics, and specifically her breast development, are a recent development that has been set in motion by trauma. Okay. So, yeah, basically she says that her doctors told her that she had gone through some sort of recent trauma 
and this altered her glands, and they started making estrogen. Is the trauma implied to be her experience as a prisoner of war? Well, that's how uh, one of the biographers, Pagan Kennedy, understands it. But if you look at the memoirs, I think she's actually mistaken. She says that it was due to, quote, a violent emotional shock I experienced after the war without specifying what it is. Okay. And like, again, she contradicts herself. She says that there was some kind of traumatic event that happened in between the end of the war and now, which is like the late 40s. Mm-hmm. But she also says that her doctors say that this had been obviously going on for 10 years. So people definitely have the experience of being intersex and not knowing anything about that until they hit puberty. Yes. I'm absolutely no expert on intersex conditions. I know basically nothing about this. Is it possible that like to your knowledge, maybe research you've done from this episode, that, say, like, secondary sex characteristics, that kind of thing, can develop later in life after a time we'd expect someone to hit puberty? Like, this claim that she's developed breasts at this later point in her life when she's in, like, her 30s? It's certainly not standard. This is, like, as you might guess, a pretty hard thing to just Google. That's fair, Because yeah. it's not at all a standard experience of intersex mm-hmm. people. Mm. Yeah, intersex people generally find out they're intersex or are found out to be intersex either at birth because of ambiguous genitalia or at puberty or when they go digging into their own medical records. I don't know of any I, time this has happened. I did briefly ask a doctor. Oh, okay. My brother-in-law, who is not an endocrinologist, <laughs> but is a doctor. And I was like, hey, does this sound like something that would happen? And he was like, no, but I'm not an endocrinologist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, You don't have to say anything decisive about this. Yeah. yeah, obviously there's, like, a lot of, like, different pieces of her story that we mm. could pick apart and say, okay, is this medically possible? Is this medically possible? Like, do these facts she's mm. claimed line up with the facts yeah. she's claimed elsewhere in life? I don't know how productive it is to pick apart the individual parts when there are so many mm. parts to pick apart. Yeah. I also just think that even if this was a recognizably plausible intersex variation – Her realizing that she identifies as a woman and then spontaneously starting to grow breasts is just incredibly convenient for her. Mm, mm, mm. The idea that she had no Mm -hmm. understanding of what was happening with her gender identity until she went and visited a medical professional. And then from that point, medical professionals universally agreed that her body was feminine, which even if it were true, mm-hmm. like even if everything she said was medically true, seems mm-hmm. like extraordinarily unlikely. Yes. Like like either way around you take that, it's, you know, yeah, a little overly convenient and a little overly kind of neat and simplistic. Yeah. So given sort of all of that, although like, yeah, not a doctor, not a doctor, <laughs> um, I think that the most obvious explanation for this is that Roberta is a trans woman who is trying to find a way to represent her story that would make her experiences and her body acceptable to the society she's living in and to herself. So this story comes from those memoirs that were published in a newspaper shortly after she was outed to the press in which she's being touted as the first transsexual in Britain. Mm -hmm. There's not really much of a concept of what a trans person is Mm. at the time. And she's, I think, trying to build a narrative as best she can to make her life, like, livable. And, like, we have seen this before with other trans people we've talked about. Like, we talked about Paulie Murray and Mm. his, like, attempts to get doctors to say if he had internal testes to kind of justify the fact that he felt like a man. Mm. Like, yeah, there's definitely... 
other examples. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the Chevalier. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, you know, getting doctors to say things and making public statements that kind of push the burden of your trans identity off of yourself and kind mm. of onto a kind of external authority mm. or external factors yeah. that are like imposed upon your body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I found this quote from her memoirs particularly telling, referring to the reveal that her body was fundamentally a female one. She wrote, this knowledge raised my morale very considerably. The intense shame I had felt began to disappear. Once I realized that my femininity had a physical basis, I didn't despise myself so much. I now knew, of course, that I was physically abnormal, but I could accept a degree of involuntary femininity without losing self-respect. Also, as you've noted, both of you, Roberta does remove her own agency from every step of the process that led to her transition as she presents it. So like a psychiatrist essentially just informs her that her mind is female. Tests can't be denied. It just is. Her decision to seek out sexologists isn't even a decision she makes until someone says, hey, you've got boobs. Once she goes and sees the doctors, similar to the psychiatrist, they just tell her, your body is a woman's body. And Mm -hmm. she has created this narrative where she's been put in the situation where she had to decide to transition. She's able to therefore present this choice as one that is affirming social norms and the gender binary, not undermining them. You know, she's deciding to live as a woman rather than being someone of ambiguous sex and or gender, which she presents as basically the only other option. Yeah, yeah. She's kind of presenting it as, I had to choose whether to go down the path of becoming a man or becoming Mm. a woman. Yeah. Which is definitely an interesting way to frame that. And yeah, I think your interpretation of that, of it being a way to uphold societal norms around the gender binary, makes a lot of sense in terms of why you would make those decisions as to how to frame your story. Mm. Mm. I just think it's worth mentioning, given that we've discussed sort of her claim that she's intersex, that this is exactly what a lot of intersex people experience, like at birth, in early childhood, at puberty, where doctors basically force them or their parents to go, well, which side are you going to go with? Which side of the gender binary are we going to do the necessary or, you know, unnecessary, but claim to be necessary medical procedures to make you fit in with what yeah, society absolutely. expects? And I guess that's a good point to kind of like directly address the fact that she's appropriating experiences that most likely are not hers or at least some aspect of which are not hers Mm -hmm. and i specifically want to mention this because the appropriation of intersex experiences and identity is quite common in these early days of medical transition existing so we've mentioned other episodes that this has come up in holly murray never claimed to be intersex but just kind of found that as the only real reason he felt like he could explain his identity michael dylan also to a lesser extent kind of claimed to be intersex in that he was falsely like quote-unquote diagnosed as being intersex in order to allow him to change his sex legally and things like that like there is quite a conflation at this time particularly i wanted to mention it because it is still something that does occur today like trans people falsely claiming to be intersex because of perceived benefit they'll get in a particular situation i'm not implying that intersex people are better accepted or understood by society than trans people because they're not. Obviously, it's not the case of trans people trying to access the privilege of intersex people or anything like that. But, Mm. like, in cases where trans people claim to be intersex, that's generally the reason. And, you know, I've seen intersex people address this and Mm. clearly state, as you would expect, that this is inappropriate and disrespectful and contributes to lack of awareness and understanding regarding intersex issues. 
And, you know, although like Roberta's in a different time than now and is in more extreme circumstances than now, I still didn't want to condone this necessarily historically or today through omission. And I will include some literature on like intersex people talking about this issue in our sources. Cool. It kind of makes me think of how like some people have talked about their sexuality in a like less medical Mm. sense where people have kind of talked about like having a man's spirit inside them or having a woman's spirit inside them therefore that kind of justifies a same-sex relationship Mm. it's kind of just that but like in a society where you've got more advanced medical technology and therefore that's kind of more involved in your sex and gender i don't know it just kind of seemed Mm. a similar kind of process of making a part of your identity that isn't accepted by society palatable to that society by sort of claiming an external influence upon it Mm -hmm. this definitely was a way that it's part of the historical conflation of trans identity and like queer sexualities right where they kind of weren't seen as as separate Mm, things mm. yeah i don't know i kind of don't even know where to begin there because there's like so much stuff you could say but (laughs) yeah sorry to open a giant no 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 that's okay that's what like this is what this podcast is for (laughs) i'm not implying that you said this but i guess like i do and to clarify that I feel that's different and that it's not like one group kind of like appropriating the experiences Mm, of mm. the other so much as just like a historical conflation that naturally has changed or shifted. Yeah, totally. I totally understand that it's, yeah, definitely not appropriative in the same way of real people's identities. But yeah, I just thought it was an interesting kind Mm. of progression of ways in which people present their queer identities to broader society. So Roberta used this narrative to distance herself from other trans people. So she said in a interview with the Sunday Times in the 70s, I was a freak. I had an operation and I'm not a freak anymore. I had female chromosome makeup, XX. The people who have followed me have often been those with male chromosomes, XY. So they've been normal people who've turned themselves into freaks by means of the operation. I see. (laughs) There are, like, frankly, worse quotes, but I decided to omit them. I have another quote with a similar vibe that she said about Christine Jorgensen, who was another early trans woman who was a media sensation around the same time that Roberta was, but in the USA instead of in Britain. Roberta said she had never been a pseudo-hermaphrodite or a person possessing two sets of sexual characteristics, one dormant and one active. The distinctive feature in her case, of course, and the basis for all the controversy, was the fact that the change had been apparently been induced entirely through artificial means, no spontaneous changes having taken place at all, as they did in my case. And that sort of rhetoric just makes me more and more suspicious that Mm. she's just made it all up, because she's literally just being like, well, I'm not like those degenerate transsexuals, this just happened to me. Yeah, yeah and that's where, you know, obviously I have a lot of sympathy for early trans people yeah. trying to make a place for themselves in societies that just weren't at all accepting of that. Yeah. But... but <laughs> as a degenerate transsexual. <laughs> but at the point at which you are, in doing so, throwing other trans people under the bus and, you know, walking through the door and then making a place for yourself and then locking it mm-hmm. and shutting anyone else, everyone else out from that. Yeah. And we see this kind of, like, you know, assimilationist respectability politics in so many different, mm. like, social movements. We see this with, like quote-unquote normal gay people throwing 
like trans people and queer people that they view as not being sufficiently respectable under the bus. And we see this with like early feminists not wanting black women to be involved with their movement and like just any social movement you can think of will have examples of groups and individuals doing this kind of thing. And like, it's always the same thing where it's like, well, I see what you're up against and I understand why you did this, but it's not sympathetic and it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw a tweet on an issue that I'm not going to talk about because it's a can of worms <laughs> and it'll be out of date <laughs> discourse by the time this episode is released. But I saw a tweet in response to this discourse that sort of was talking about how kind of inevitably you'll be on one side of an issue in queer politics because of the circumstances of your life and you will have resentment for people on the other side. And that is going to happen, but you really need to acknowledge that that resentment is not really about them and their resentment for you is not really about you. It's about the society that is oppressing mm-hmm. both of you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like that's true for this is not a queer-only issue by any means. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So now that we've unpacked that a little bit, where we're up to in the story is Roberta deciding that she is going to transition mm-hmm. and become a woman, as she phrases it. And so she starts hormones. As a result of these hormones, her skin became clearer and softer, and she lost muscle mass and body hair. She also mentioned that her beard loosened and then entirely disappeared and claims to have become 1.5 inches shorter. Um, But specifically, (laughs) she lost the height in her back, not her legs, so her proportions were were better. (laughs) Did did she specifically say that? Yes! (laughs) I respect that, frankly. Um, she also sure, she also talks about how her voice became higher in pitch, and she has like a bit where she talks about how because she was wearing like tighter fitting shoes, her shoe size decreased or something. Some of these effects aren't possible, furthering the possibility that she's perfectly happy to lie in this yeah. memoir. And she notes herself that some of these changes are not true of transgender women, which she differentiates from herself, presumably to further distance herself from this group. She says, many of the male sex characteristics are not reversible. Hormone treatment is not likely to alter the voice and will not necessarily cause loss of either beard or body hair. But for Roberta, they did. (laughs) I don't know. I just think it's interesting where, like, even if she was intersex, like, the hormones don't know if you're intersex or trans. And... Yeah, I don't I, think you being intersex instead of trans is going to make your beard fall out. Like, you know, not a doctor, but I also am just very skeptical of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess in the worldview that she's mm. presenting here, you know, she's saying she has excess chromosomes and like... They know. <laughs> they know that the beard shouldn't be here. Yeah, well, and I, I guess the idea is that like, oh, well, I've got female DNA and mm. like, you know, responded to the hormones more effectively than... You know, I guess yeah. a transgender woman's body will respond to those female hormones because they're meant for me. Mm. Narratively, that seems like what she's kind of. Oh yeah, for. like narratively, <laughs> it makes sense. Um, Medically, I'm suspicious. Yeah, you know, narrative is my specialty, not okay. science. Yeah, <laughs> no one here has a science specialty. That's why we're a history podcast. Uh, yeah. But I'm starting to think we should get an endocrinologist on one day. <laughs> Um, Roberta decided that she needed to switch professions to one where she could be feminine without losing self-respect or being socially stigmatized. And she paid £4,000 to become a stakeholder and managing director, if only in name, of Sheridan of London Designs, which was a women's clothing company. And she was apprenticed to a dress designer and designed a few pieces that got made. That's cool. pretty cool. Yeah. You know, we've been pretty disparaging of Roberta for the past uh, half an hour, but that's 
kind of neat. Roberta describes this as a public admission that there was a feminine side to my nature, and it seems like quite a big emotional step for her Mm. and her transition. She was concerned with how to logistically manage the transition and decided to move to a neighborhood where there was quote, a preponderance of artistic people, end quote. Gay. Um, which, is, which is one of the euphemisms that she uses for, like, queer people. Yeah. yeah. And Roberta is seemingly able to find a refuge in that subculture. Mm-hmm. However, Roberta either never truly felt at home there or felt the need to distance herself from that part of her life later. She says, this was only a passing phase for me, and I never really fitted into this type of society, although I had many friends among them. Elsewhere, she is blunter and frankly more queerphobic, saying, and this is one of like many similar quotes I could take you through. One thing was certain, I had not the slightest desire to swell the ranks of the gentlemen of no particular gender. It is true that I had become a little more tolerant in this direction than I had been in the past. This meant, however, that had I met one, I would have refrained from actually kicking his spine up through the top of his head. So she's just basically acknowledging that she is a queerphobic person. Oh yeah, she's very unapologetically homophobic yeah. in her... Uh, memoir, I would say. She talks about how she would be mistaken for a gay man and how this like really disgusted her and she was very bothered by it. Yeah. But on that note, I would like to talk about Roberta's sexuality for a, a brief moment. Brief because like I don't really know what her sexuality is, is the spoiler. So she does talk about her sexuality in her memoir. She says, my sexual inclinations were normal until the period of hormonal imbalance began. While my body was undergoing changes, all inclinations died. When they appeared again, they were reoriented. But this reorientation was normal since I was then a woman. So basically the way she phrases it, she was a straight man. And then when she was transitioning, she wasn't interested in anyone. And then she was a straight woman. Once again. Convenient. Much too convenient. Especially the bit where she wasn't interested in anyone while she was transitioning. Mm. Because it kind of absolves her of being in this Potentially queer. Yeah, exactly. There's not going to be any queer relationships there because she's not interested in anyone conveniently at that time. And yeah, like it is, you know, like possible that this was genuinely her experience. Mm -hmm. A lot of trans people do experience a shift in their attraction when they transition. And also like a lot of trans people do like have a lot of stuff going on emotionally when they transition and may just not want to bother with dating for a Mm -hmm. while. So like, you know, it is possible, but it also is very convenient and fits into her narrative very neatly. Yeah, I think, you know, removed from the way that she phrased it, Mm. the concept of, you know, being a quote-unquote heterosexual man and then transitioning and being a heterosexual woman, Mm. that idea is definitely something that happens Mm. uh, with trans people. I've seen that in people that I've known online. And that said, the way that she's phrasing it there is, again, very self-serving. Yeah. So regarding the relationships that Roberta has been in, obviously she was married to a woman Mm -hmm. and she does mention that she started to date men after her transition. I don't feel like any of that necessarily affirms or denies what she's saying because I feel like that could all just be down to like compulsory heterosexuality Mm -hmm. and then Mm. a compulsory heterosexuality again, but different. So yeah, like I I think kind of her sexuality could be anything. I did want to mention her friend Lisa. (laughs) Okay. Roberta has a very important friend called Lisa and she met her shortly before starting to transition when they were staying at the same hotel. She describes her relationship with Lisa thus. There was a strong though rather strange affinity between us. We spent every possible moment in each other's company. I told her everything there was to be told about myself, and she was remarkably understanding. 
When Roberta enters this artistic scene, as she calls it, (laughs) it's apparent that Lisa is also part of this social circle, and the two later live together. I'm not sure if it's on and off or it's consistently, but at least on and off until Lisa's death in 2009. And I just wanted to mention this because if this was like any other two women and they had a strong though strange affinity and were part of a queer circle briefly and lived together for like decades, then that would be ringing some pretty strong gay vibes. So I had not seen this suggested in the biographies or in her memoir, Past What I Told You, and I sort of thought I might have like hit upon something that no one has ever hit upon before. And then I was reading uh, newspaper articles about this, and in one article, Liz Hodgkinson just straight up says that Lisa was her lover. Now, this isn't referred to anywhere else in any capacity that I could find. Okay. Oh, man, that's so disappointing. It is, yeah. Yeah, especially so, given that Liz did actually know her. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, like, I don't know. Did you say that was in a newspaper article? Yep, yeah, it was a newspaper article for the Daily Express in 2015. Yeah, and just the question of, you know, was she just misquoted? Mm. Oh, well, she wrote the article, I mean. it's not- Oh, she wrote the yes. article. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Potentially even then the article was edited yeah. in a way that made her comments insinuate things that she didn't intend. Mm. I mean, and also, frankly, like, she could have just been wrong. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Uh, obviously that. Like, I would love for there to be more information yeah, no, about uh, this potential quote yeah. from someone who knew Roberta personally. Yeah, particularly as they are about to get into another potential relationship of hers and knowing if she was literally in a long-term relationship with a woman she was living with, like, is kind of of relevance to that. <laughs> Do you know, was that article where um, Liz Hodgkinson said Lisa was her lover, was that published before or after Roberta's death? After her death. Okay, because that could, like, explain to some degree why it's not in any of the biographies, because she obviously had, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's not in any of the material that is pretty upfront about things like saying that she lied about being intersex Mm -hmm. and about, like, the part we're about to get into, which is another big lie in all of this. So it would be weird if, like, they were like, yeah, everything's on the table now, but we won't mention this. I mean, it could just be that that wasn't actually that, like, sensational. There's not really a story to be told there, as Mm -hmm. there is with her transition. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, I... I don't know. It's, it's a bit ironic that this podcast is named Queer as Facts. Yeah. <laughs> queer as speculation. <laughs> queer as a distressing lack of facts. After a couple of years of taking estrogen, Roberta was still presenting as male in her daily life, and she entered a period in which her gender was ambiguous. Roberta was constantly stared at in public, and strangers openly argued about her sex. Mm. Um, and it's just a very unpleasant time of her life. She doesn't feel the ability to begin living full time as a woman, partly because she is still legally a man. And so she is stuck and she doesn't know what to do next. And then she came across a book called Self, A Studies in Ethics and Endocrinology, published in 1946. We know this book from a previous episode. We do. This book argues the then radical notion that transgender people should be allowed to medically transition. The author was Michael Dillon, who was himself a transgender man who had forged his own path through medical transition and was now living full-time as a man and going to medical school. And yes, we did do a previous episode on him very early in the podcast. I don't know if it holds up, frankly. (laughs) But, you know, if you want to know more about Michael, you can listen to it and make up your mind for yourself. (laughs) That was actually the first trans episode we did, and we definitely hadn't hit our stride with some of the more, like, analytical elements of our podcast yet. So I kind of feel like it's the one that got away, and I'm excited to revisit Michael 
in my current evolved form. (laughs) (laughs) Roberta contacted Michael through his publisher and they exchanged letters before agreeing to meet in a London restaurant in 1950. So Michael came out to Roberta in that meeting and that much of the story is told in Roberta's memoirs. But that is all she says about Michael in the memoir. She does not talk about anything of their relationship after that day. And Michael does not mention Roberta in his memoirs at all. Okay. Interesting. So this is kind of a mess. Okay. And this is where the difficulties that the biographies have, the differences in them really comes into play. So I'm going to tell you what Liz Hodgkinson's biography tells us, and then I'm going to tell you what the documentary and Pagan Kennedy's biography tell us, which are like roughly equivalent. So there are sort of two major versions for what happens next. The first one is presented in Hodgkinson's biography of Michael. So to kind of recap what we said at the start of the episode, Hodgkinson was friends with Roberta, and during this friendship, Roberta gave Liz Hodgkinson just like a pile of Roberta's personal papers from this time. And in this were a whole lot of letters that Michael had written to Roberta. Roberta's replies have been lost, which is unfortunate. Mm. It's on the basis of these papers and conversations that Hodgkinson had with Roberta that Hodgkinson wrote her account of this meeting and of Roberta's subsequent relationship with Michael. But again, because Roberta was alive and involved in this book, Hodgkinson left some stuff out. So Michael fell in love with Roberta and wrote her some very intense, effusive, passionate letters. They are quoted fairly liberally in Hodgkinson's book, though unfortunately none of them are produced in full. So here are a couple of sample quotes of Michael being in love. (laughs) He says, I need to have two whiskeys in me before I could start off my beloved Bobby. I've never called anyone that before and you know what my inhibitions are like. And then in another one, he says, oh, Bobby, Bobby, come to me soon. I'm wanting you all the time. And there's a lot of things like that. He's really in love with Roberta. Okay. Yes. Hodgkinson notes that many of his letters have proposals of marriage included in them. So he says, I shall get it, a brooch, for you and give it to you on some special occasion, e.g. the day you say yes or something like that. Because you're going to, don't forget, whenever you've become acclimatized to things. I'm not rushing anything. I just know it, as I've said before. The whole thing is too incredible otherwise. And another quote she gives is, I'm trying to assemble something together for a decent home so that I'll have something to offer you other than a rather bare bachelor establishment. Because whether you accept it or not, it will still be offered. All that's mine is yours. So as these quotes sort of indicate, what I guess Roberta tells Liz Hodgkinson is that Michael sort of believed because they're both trans that they're like destined to be together. It's, it's too incredible that they would have met otherwise and he just thinks it's perfect that they would end up together and they would start building a future together. And he's actively planning for this future to the extent that he gives Roberta a ring. But as is also, I think, a little apparent from those quotes, Roberta doesn't reciprocate. For, mm-hmm. for a few reasons, she says that she doesn't think they had anything in common. There's also a bit of a condescending streak to how Michael talks to her in some of the letters and she rejects his proposal. She says, presumably this is a quote from a conversation she had with Liz Hodgkinson because it's in Hodgkinson's biography, but it's not like, cited. Mm-hmm. When I realized he was really serious, I had to tell him that although I liked and respected him very much as a person, there was no possible way I could ever think of marrying him. So that's the account that we get from Hodgkinson's biography. And from what I can tell, that all seems to basically be true. And it is all presented in other versions of the story, including the documentary that Hodgkinson was involved in and Kennedy's biography of Michael. Uh, Okay. So it's more that Hodgkinson told an incomplete story rather than, like, a falsehood. 
Again, as far as I can tell, I only have the sources that Hodgkinson has given us, so, like, who knows. However, I do want to note that it is a little strange that Roberta essentially presents it that she didn't think that Michael was serious about wanting to marry her until the proposal. As we've heard there, Hodgkinson quotes letters that evidence that he was quite upfront and quite earnest about this. And as Kennedy uh, points out in her biography, it would stand to reason that Michael probably had some reason to believe there was a chance that they would marry, given a lot of his behavior at this time. So Michael had photographs of Roberta up in his apartment, which visitors understood was of his fiance. He had also taken Roberta to visit his aunts, again, with the understanding that she was his fiance. And like, you know, I guess it's possible that he was a stalker, but... I know, like, many women, more women than I ought to know, who have been in this situation where they're friends with a guy, but the guy thinks they're dating. Like, There's a difference between dating and engaged. But I feel like that difference was less then than it is now. Yeah, maybe so. Still, having said that, I I don't know. I feel particularly going to visit his family and them taking away from that that this is his fiance requires a certain amount of like not necessarily reciprocation but certainly not any discouragement yeah it suggests that at no point did she say anything that suggested otherwise yeah yeah i also just sort of thought like the way that hodgkinson phrases a lot of this stuff is that michael acquired photographs of roberta michael Mm. had taken her to meet the arms and it again kind of seemed to me like that playing down of her agency that she does in her own Mm -hmm. memoirs that just kind of like rung an alarm bell yeah you know like obviously today it is quite easy to get a photograph of someone and put it up in your house if you're a weirdo yeah but at this point like roberta isn't really presenting as feminine like in her daily life she's only out seemingly to lisa and to michael so if he has a photograph of her like presenting as a woman there's really doesn't seem to be plausible sources from that that aren't roberta yeah and you know she's like giving him this photograph Mm -hmm. and like going on trips with him and stuff like that is enough to kind of raise interest in what this relationship might have been one of the quotes from michael earlier referred to you know sort of them getting married once roberta was sort of comfortable in herself Mm -hmm. and it does strike me as possible that this situation was neither Roberta being closer with Michael than she's claiming or Michael being more of a stalker than would seem apparent mm-hmm. from his letters, in that I could kind of definitely see a scenario where Roberta is still sort of becoming comfortable with her feminine identity and sort of plays along with a lot of the kind of trappings of being in a kind of, you know, traditional relationship with Michael kind of feeling as if it's not a hundred percent real then therefore coming Mm. to very kind of different conclusions because they're kind of at different stages of their transition Mm. different kind of perspectives on that relationship obviously it's hard where we've already established there's a bunch of instances where Roberta Mm. has been less than honest for tactical reasons seemingly Mm -hmm. yeah and i think with that it's one of those things where knowing if she was in a long-term relationship with someone Mm -hmm. would be like good to know yeah (laughs) because i mean that doesn't make it impossible but you know it's relevant information Mm. and we don't really know i think it's especially worth considering that like roberta obviously really wants to present herself as this just like very normal heteronormative conventional woman Mm -hmm. and like having a male partner 
obviously fits with that image she wants to present of herself. And like, I don't know exactly how the situation would have been, but I imagine it would have been quite hard for her to find a cisgender male partner who would kind of accept Mm. her and everything. So having Michael would have fitted that life that she wanted, that image she wanted to project. But at the same time, especially if she was in a relationship with Lisa, she may have actually had some misgivings Mm. and wanted to hold back on that at the same time. Mm. The straightforward reason that I will tell you now that we've discussed a bunch of possibilities <laughs> for this is that if we go back to why Roberta wanted that meeting mm-hmm. in that restaurant is that she was stuck in her transition and she wanted to move her transition along and she didn't know how. She contacted Michael wanting help accessing surgery. So Michael has himself had surgery. He's quite well known for being the first trans man to undergo a phalloplasty, which was performed by Dr. Harold Gillies. I remember Dr. Harold Gillies just being an amazing guy. Yeah, he did pranks and stuff. (laughs) Yeah, he was great. (laughs) Which won't appear on this episode. Um, But yeah, he seemed like a really good guy. He was a pioneering plastic and reconstructive surgeon, and he kind of had this attitude that it didn't really matter if a particular surgery was not medically necessary for the patient's health if it was going to alleviate like mental distress or discomfort then that was reason enough which was quite a radical notion at the time Hmm. and some of the patients that gilly saw were intersex people so kennedy gives the example of a patient that gilly saw in 1922 who had been assigned female at birth due to hyperspadius which is a condition where The opening of the urethra is along the shaft of the penis or at the base of the penis, and it can sometimes cause the child to be assigned female at birth because it looks similar to a vulva. And this person had, as I said, been assigned female at birth, but wanted to live as a man. Mm -hmm. And so Gillies performed a minor operation and crucially provided him with the medical documentation necessary to legally change his sex. Hmm. And Gillies also diagnosed Michael with hyperspadius to provide an excuse to quietly help him to legally transition. And he was obviously willing to pioneer surgical options as well, given that Michael was the first trans person to receive a phalloplasty. So certified Lynch. (laughs) (laughs) So that gives you a bit of a glimpse of the possibilities that existed for trans men, although they were by no means widely exploited or widely available but things were more difficult for trans women there was a law on the books in britain and the usa at the time which prevented a doctor from amputating healthy testicles and so roberta could not find a surgeon or a doctor who was willing to help her continue her transition either through surgery or merely through providing her the letter that would allow her to change her sex Hmm. this is the situation she's in when she finds herself stuck and seeks out Michael's help. So unfortunately, Michael's medical connections aren't of any use to Roberta. Gillies is obviously willing to sort of bend the law a little bit, but this is, I guess, of a higher severity of potential consequences than anything he's done so far, and he isn't going to help Roberta by doing anything that would involve removing her testicles. Hmm. So the solution they come up with is that Michael does it himself. And this is evidenced by a document that Liz Hodgkinson found in Roberta's papers. It's a little bit long, but I'm just going to read you that document in full. So the document says, I, RC, have of my own free will asked and persuaded LMD, who I am aware is an unqualified man, a fifth year medical student, to perform an orchidectomy upon me, which is the like proper medical term for the removal of someone's testicles. I am also aware that his operating experience has been confined solely to assisting at operations as a resident pupil in hospital and to one appendectomy in the presence of a surgeon, and that he has neither seen nor practiced this particular operation. 
I desire that he be absolved from all responsibility in this operation due to possible hemorrhage or sepsis, which I am desirous to undergo, being fully aware that either might be fatal. That's intense. That is pretty intense, yeah. Yeah, that's intense for all parties involved. Yep. So we know nothing about the circumstances that led to them deciding to do this, but clearly at some point they have this conversation and then Michael obtained whatever materials were necessary. We don't know if he used anesthetic. We don't know where this was done, presumably just in his house. Uh, But this operation was conducted and thankfully Roberta survived. Okay. So this surgery happens Mm -hmm. and... Then what does Roberta do? Because obviously this surgery is a means to an end, and that Mm -hmm. end is legally Mm -hmm. changing her sex. In Roberta's memoir, she recounts the meeting with Michael, Mm -hmm. and then she picks up pretty much immediately when she goes to see a doctor who was a gynecologist, Dr. George Dussault. And she is examined by this doctor, and then he and his colleague go into another room. Roberta claims she could press her ear to the door and hear what they said. Um, and what he said is there is not the slightest doubt, whatever the patient is quite definitely not a man. She is undoubtedly a woman. And so agrees to write the letter for her, a sworn medical affidavit. And in May of 1951, she becomes legally female. So she just completely skips over the fact that she had this operation before yes. she was able to get this yes, letter. Yes, it is illegal that she did this. Oh, yeah, so, I guess that's true. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> it is illegal and also, like, it creates an understanding of her being a transgender woman. Mm-hmm. That she obviously not does not want to give. An intersex person that she doesn't want to give. Yeah. yeah. So, like, as I said a bit earlier, she doesn't at any point say that she was born without testicles, but she does kind of talk around them a lot. Mm-hmm. So she will say, I learned that I was, you know, somehow producing testosterone apparently from the adrenal glands oh, and stuff okay, like that. Fly. So the version of this that Kennedy gives, which I, th- I assume is just kind of her reading between the lines of this account to what must have happened, is that she went to see this doctor hoping that he would examine her and because she had no testicles just agree to write her this document yeah either because she had fooled him or kind of just out of the kindness of his heart essentially Mm -hmm. um and for whatever reason he does yeah Yeah. and so like potentially you know in the same way that gillies the doctor earlier was you know not willing to bend the rules because there were such strict laws around the removal of Mm -hmm. testicles once they have been removed yeah it's now much less of a risk for that doctor to yes. give that statement. This law would continue into the 1960s, at least, and Kennedy notes that later vaginoplasties that were performed in Britain, the doctors would note castrated abroad in their notes so they couldn't be legally, you know, investigated for this and anything. And, like, probably later on, some of these women just had those orchidectomies performed by the doctors who did their vaginoplasties who were willing to lie, Mm. or some of them would have gone to Europe and Mm. um, had that operation done and things like that. So these are the kind of workarounds that are being worked out at this time. In May of 1951, Roberta becomes legally a woman. And in July, Michael proposes, Roberta rejects him. And as far as we know, they never speak again. Yeah. So we're going to move on from Michael because he is uh, no longer appearing in this story. But um, (laughs) I... (laughs) I did want to briefly discuss how Michael's portrayed in her memoir because it's quite interesting to me. So Roberta, as we've mentioned, really heavily distances herself from other trans people and doesn't really have anything nice to say about other Mm. trans people in that memoir. With the sole exception of Michael, he's the only trans person that Roberta talks about with any degree of respect in that memoir. She only really talks about him in their first meeting, but she 
in that section of her memoir gives an overview of his life story and just kind of straightforwardly tells that and doesn't pass judgment on him. She Mm. certainly does not imply that he's made himself into a freak or anything Mm -hmm. like that, as she says about other trans people. She says, I found it impossible to imagine him as a girl. He was as genuine a man as any I have met. And she talks about how convincing and satisfactory a result modern medicine had given him. And, I mean, I thought it was interesting that she included him at all, given that she could have easily written around him. Given that she wrote around the surgery that he conducted on Yes. I also thought it was interesting that Michael had, you know, technically been diagnosed with having an intersex variation. And, like, I don't know if she knew that or not. Possibly she didn't. But it would have seemed more natural, from my perspective, for her to try and use his story as a precedent for her own and talk about him as someone who was intersex, given that legally he was. Mm. Mm. Additionally, Roberta later would talk much more cruelly about Michael in her conversations with Liz Hodgkinson. So contrary to her statement about him being as genuine a man as she had ever met, when telling Hodgkinson about how she had rejected his proposal, she said, as far as I was concerned, it would have been two females getting married and I was certainly not interested in him in that kind of way. She also recounts one time that he showed her his penis and she makes it clear that this wasn't like a come on or anything. It was just a like, I've had surgery and this is the result of that. Mm -hmm. And she recounts when he did it, she made a joke about how it looked and that Michael didn't laugh, and she said this was because he, quote, did not exactly have the most perfectly developed sense of humour, which is <laughs> rude. Um, but but okay. I wanted to note that in particular because she talks about how satisfactory a result his surgeries had given him, mm. and, you know, mm-hmm. then she makes it clear that actually she thinks the result of his surgeries was laughable, and I just thought that was interesting. I think that you can kind of understand both of these ways as serving the narratives that she's trying to present. Mm. So she has decided for whatever reason to include this other trans person, and so it kind of behooves her to present, like, this was not a weirdo. This was not a gentleman of no particular sex. He was a genuine man with a body that was indistinguishable from other men. He was a man's man, etc., etc. But then, you know, she can also take later this other tactic of being like, well, he's transgender, which has nothing to do with me, and therefore he's basically just a woman and he's surgically become a freak. What's the timeline of when these two oh, sure, are sorry. from? So the comments about his transition having been very satisfactory mm-hmm. and him being convincing as a man are from her memoir that mm-hmm. was written in the early 50s. The comment about how, as far as she was concerned, it would have been two women getting married is something that she said to Liz Hodgkinson in, I don't know, the... 70s or 80s when this book was being written and the story about her seeing his penis and making a joke about it also is one that she tells to Liz when Liz is writing that biography. Is Michael Dillon alive at that point? Nope. Michael Dillon died in 1962. Actually, after his relationship with Roberta ends, I'm not sure exactly when, but soon after that he joins the Merchant Navy as a ship's doctor Mm. and he is on short contracts. But then when Roberta is outed in the press, Mm. uh, shortly after he is also outed in the press and he takes a longer contract to basically flee Britain. And shortly after that, he moves permanently to India and becomes a Buddhist monk and uh, like dies in poverty in India. Right. So, okay, that then fits with kind of what we've seen from Roberta at various points in this episode of her saying things that suit her needs Mm -hmm. at the particular moment there is a logic to upholding the validity of michael dillon's identity as a trans man in the early 50s 
when he has just conducted an illegal surgery upon her that was crucial to her being accepted as a woman Mm. in society, and he is still alive and could, you know, obviously reveal the details of that, obviously, to his own detriment as well as hers, but certainly that was a possibility, and then there's no longer an incentive to be Mm. nice to him, and indeed potentially an incentive to once again, as she did with other trans people, distance herself from him later on. And so it's hard, really, to say, as with a lot of things in the episode, what her true feelings on that are. Yeah, for sure. So to, again, refresh ourselves on where we're up to in the story, Roberta became legally female, and about nine months after that, early in 1952, she had a vaginoplasty. This surgery was performed by Dr. Gillies, the same surgeon who had operated on Michael. There wasn't an established body of medical literature to draw from, so he kind of just had to figure it out. And the way he did this was the day before the operation, he cleared off a table in his office, put a corpse on it, and just did a dry run. <laughs> Which is frankly more than he did for Michael, so, you know, he seems very prepared. <laughs> That's very alarming. It really is. This guy, I really want to get a hold of a biography of him and read it at some point, because I understand that he pioneered a lot of he was doing just, like, as he went. Like, there's a particular line in Kennedy's biography that really just seized my imagination about how he was operating, like, I don't know, you know, some insane amount of hours a day, chain-smoking and just on his off times sketching noses on the backs of envelopes, because a lot of his early work was in reconstructing faces from soldiers who'd been deformed by the war. And, like, what a madman. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Yeah, I really want to dig around in what he was doing because I frankly want to know, like, did he just operate on these two trans people or did he keep doing this or, like, what? Mm. Yeah, and, like, obviously, you know, he was at least some level of accepting of these trans people. Mm. Clearly, to some extent, there was just a kind of medical curiosity thing going on here. So he was doing that. And then the next day, Roberta came to the hospital and checked in and prepared for the operation. And he did it again on a living person. And thankfully, it was a success. I'm really glad that all of the risky surgeries that this woman got, like radical, like contraband bootleg surgeries, work out fine. Yeah. I'm just really glad that that happened. She's very lucky in that regard. Yes. But yep, so she wakes up two days after the surgery and they tell her she has a vagina and she recovers in hospital for two weeks and she goes home and she has a vagina now and that's it good for her neat the way she talks about this in her memoir is she refers to it as a surgery to correct the congenital absence of a vagina which you know like i guess isn't truly incorrect yeah as much as i think some of her lies are harmful to other trans people and therefore i'm you know not a huge fan Mm. of some aspects of that intersex people and to intersex people Yeah. yeah i do kind of somewhat respect the very judicious use of the passive voice to just kind of like oh yeah lead the audience the passive to conclusions the passive voice gets a workout in all of this stuff all of the sources <laughs> she also returned to gillies to get a nose job and to have her lips operated on to make them fuller do women have fuller lips or do we just think women have fuller lips because of makeup like i genuinely don't I know the answer to don't this question know. i suspect <laughs> They don't. But I'm basing that on nothing. Yeah. Like, literally nothing. That's fair. I don't know. I just feel like sometimes I learn things when I, like, talk to trans people who are on hormones, and they're like, oh, yeah, now I'm having this experience. And I'm like, oh, I thought the fact that only one gender had this experience was a stereotype. Okay. Yeah, that is, like, quite a thing. I feel like that about how, like, once I went on testosterone, I just, like, didn't cry anymore. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, okay. 
Now I can finally remain composed while watching the amazing and beautiful film Spirits, Dying of the Cimarron, starring Matt Damon. Anyway, I also kind of respect the way Roberta talks about this, kind of calling back to how she talks about how she became shorter, but in a way that meant that it looked like she had longer legs. She says, The plan, therefore, was to have my face drastically altered by surgery. This would remove all residual traces of masculinity and relieve me of the fear that I would be recognized. Incidentally, I could be made better looking. (laughs) I guess she's like, if I'm getting plastic surgery on my face, I may as well. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, like essentially what she's doing there is having facial feminization surgery mm. and it is very affirming for her. And like, I support that, mm-hmm. but also like, she's clearly like, what if I was really hot and she went after that? And I respect <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. As I've sort of insinuated there, all of the surgeries she have give a immense change to her psychological state and just sort of like general mental health and her demeanor. And as Roberta presents it, it's now that she's able to start presenting full-time as a woman and she just does that she goes about her life as a woman and lives as a woman for the rest of her life i'm so glad like you know completely without judgment Mm -hmm. in this one instance yes that you know this was in the 50s yeah and that she lives another 50 years Mm -hmm. yeah like that's just amazing when she eventually passes away she's 93 so more and and, you know like as we'll get into her life isn't like necessarily easy or anything like that but like nothing traumatic is going to happen to her like Mm -hmm. she just like kind of lives her life after this point and i don't know lisa is there for much of it and that's nice but first in 1953 christine jorgensen arrives back in the usa from copenhagen where she has had her own surgery and the tabloids go into a frenzy and she becomes a celebrity. In early 1954, no doubt sort of partly spurred by this new interest in transgender women, Roberta learns that her own story is about to blow up in the press. And by the spring of 1954, she had sold her story for 20,000 pounds. So we don't know how the press found out about Roberta. Kennedy floats the idea that Roberta told them herself. She was in dire need of money and this would allow her to be the first person to tell her story. But, you know, ultimately we don't know. And I I frankly don't feel like I have enough of a handle on how this woman feels about, like, telling her story and control of information and so forth to even speculate. So I'm happy to just move along. I think that's fair. Yeah. And the story she tells in that memoir is essentially the story that we've been telling over the course of this episode. And it's a big sensation in Britain at the time. Almost every major newspaper runs the story and and sort of just repeats what is in her memoir. And her story is also published in the United States. Roberta at this time had gone overseas. She had decided to not be in Britain when the story hit, which was a good idea, I think. And so they're scouring London for like anyone who might talk to them who's got any relevance to the story. One of the people they speak to is George Dassault, who is the doctor who had signed the letter for Roberta mm-hmm. to get her sex legally changed. And he said that he hadn't intended, quote, to prove that Cal had become physiologically a complete female. It was rather in the nature of a working certificate to enable the plastic surgeons to carry out their operations. This and other information they dig up. So, for example, her father also says that when he had examined her as a child, she had been like a normal baby boy. And inconsistencies they find in her memoir leads the press to kind of change their 
tactics in talking about Roberta and their tone changes as well. So the pictorial speculated that Roberta was, quote, a transvestist, a man who is compelled by an overwhelming impulse to act as a woman and feels driven to stop at nothing to bring about and encourage all possible necessary changes. And, uh, you know, people start asserting that she's not a woman and there are demands that her birth certificate be changed back to male. And, you know, a lot of vile stuff is said in the Mm. press. And, you know, there's nothing to be done for that. It just sort of circulates in that manner for a while. Thankfully, Roberta's overseas, so it's hopefully shielded from the worst of it. And eventually the stories just kind of die down. Remarkably, no one ever raises the question of, like what happened to her testicles to put it bluntly which is good Mm. but yeah that is a a very unpleasant time but it just sort of eventually burns itself out and then essentially roberta just goes about the rest of her life as this is after her memoirs we have much less information about this when the media storm about her broke as i said she was in europe she was with lisa And we have quite a few photographs, including photographs of the two of them together, just like having a nice time in Europe. Oh, that's good. In Paris and, you know, with the Living Tower of Pisa and stuff. (laughs) Do they do that one photo where you... (laughs) (laughs) If they do, I have not seen it, but I would love to see Roberta, like, you know, standing in the wrong place to be holding up the Tower of Pisa. I would love that. When they were in Paris, Roberta reflected on the time that she had been there as a liberator, as a soldier, and on how different her experiences of being in Paris were now and how far she had come in life, which was nice. Also, what a life, my God. That seems so long ago. I'm like, oh, yeah, she did liberate Paris at the start of the But this is actually like... That was like a decade A decade. Yeah. Yeah. She's just had such a wild decade. Yeah. During her transition, Roberta had kept in touch with her parents, but she hadn't seen them for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And it was only after she had transitioned that she decided they should be effectively reintroduced. Her meeting with her parents is something that she feels very, very nervous about and their relationship was awkward at first. But at least as she tells us, they eventually become quite close again and she just continues a relationship with her family, Hmm. um, which I hope is true. That's (laughs) good. Yeah. So one of the things that she talks about in her memoir of her life sort of like just post her finishing her transition is the mental effort that she put into learning to present in a way that was convincingly feminine Mm -hmm. um, and sort of traditionally feminine and the effort she put into curbing mannerisms and interests that were unacceptably masculine. That seems quite hard for someone who was such a car girl. Yes, indeed. Yeah, like she's kind of going to have to reinvent her entire self. Yeah. So I kind of just wanted to mention this because, like, it's something that I feel like early trans people are often kind of, like, criticized for or, like, not even necessarily as, like, overtly negative as criticized, but it's noted that trans people in this era like are often quite traditionally masculine or feminine Mm -hmm. and you know sometimes people who are saying that are like just straight up turfs to be clear who are like painting trans women as being very artificial and whatnot but especially given the way roberta presents herself elsewhere i was surprised about how much nuance there was in her memoir about how she felt about like gender roles and like trying to live up to gender roles and i say that especially because like roberta was avowedly not a feminist and she didn't agree with that kind of thing Mm -hmm. but 
you know, it's it's clear that she, at least with herself, had a bit more of a, a complicated relationship. So, for example, here is a quote from her memoir. She says, In the beginning, I had overcompensated. I'd been too feminine. I'd been playing a feminine role instead of acting like a feminine person who had, like every human being, some contradictory streaks in her personality. I had studied every feminine skill, the frivolous ones as well as important ones, as if each new thing I learned were another visa stamped in the passport I needed for entry into the world of womankind. Bit by bit, I found myself. So she has this period where she's really trying to live up to this rigid idea of what she has to be as a woman, but over time she kind of just settles into being a type of woman that is natural for her. (laughs) And there's much more about that in the memoir, but... Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to know that as something of interest. And also, as I've kind of moved into the part of the episode where we're happy for Roberta, <laughs> yeah. um, wanted to know that, you know, it's good that she ends up in an expression of herself that feels like natural and good to her. Yeah, that is really nice to hear and definitely resonates with a lot of discussion I've seen of mm-hmm. trans people and yeah. sort of how they go through their transition. Mm. It is something that I wish there was kind of more space for trans people to talk about openly because. Like, basically, frankly, cis people are just very unforgiving in how they deal with trans people and, like, particularly trans women talking about their relationship to traditional gender roles. Mm -hmm. And, like, I think that most trans people have a pretty complicated and interesting relationship with those sorts of things. But it's a conversation that is often publicly suppressed a bit because of how people are so willing to twist it as like, oh, you're naturally feminine, you're a trans woman, well, then you're just like faking femininity to mimic womanhood and, oh, you're more masculine, then you're not really a woman and stuff like that. And it's just like obviously like disgusting rhetoric, but it means that trans people aren't able to talk about those things as much as Mm -hmm. as would be good. Unfortunately, Roberta did have financial difficulties as she moved forward in life. In 1958, she declared bankruptcy with a debt of £12,000 or $300,000 today. And effectively, that was just because she couldn't find a way to make money. She wanted to work, but no one would hire her. She told the London Times in 1962, whoever I worked for would have a spotlight on them. I find it virtually impossible to get a salary job because there would inevitably be publicity. And she had to depend on her parents to support her. But... You know, as unfortunate as that is, she does come from quite a a privileged background and she does have that support network Mm. there. So thankfully, she is able to still, like, live and get by. In 1952, she had dissolved the engineering company she'd founded and she would never design an engine or race in major events again. This is likely because she didn't want to be drawing attention to herself in those circles at the time when she was still transitioning. Or, you know, perhaps once she transitioned, obviously it would be more difficult for her to be accepted in that like hyper masculine world and the way she presents it in her memoir is that she kind of just stops being interested in the traditionally masculine field of cars but that's not true she was still very interested in cars she is a car girl (laughs) Um, Hodgkinson notes that she was just like mad about cars when they knew each other and that her apartment was just like crammed full of like (laughs) hubcaps and stuff Um, and indeed like Roberta did race again a few times so in 1958 for example she did a hill climb at Shelsley Walsh in Worcestershire and you know she does a few things like that over the years but in general after this time she sort of just fades from public view and she lives a very quiet life as I noted earlier she had two daughters and her daughters as they became adults tried to get in contact with Roberta and Roberta just never responded which caused them a a great deal of pain one of her daughters is in the documentary that I've mentioned sort of talking about her parent and, and how 
you know, she respected her parent for being able to transition in what she had to do and wishing that they had been able to reconnect in adulthood, but sadly that didn't happen. So, yep, Roberta lived a, a pretty quiet life with a fairly small social circle. As I noted, she lived for at least some of her life growing into old age with Lisa, but Lisa passed away in 2009. And then Roberta lived alone until she passed away herself in October of 2011 at the age of 93. That's so old. That is so old. Good on her. Yeah. Only a few people attended her funeral, as her death was not publicized, apparently at her own request. Her death actually was only reported in the newspapers two years later in 2013, and this spurred a bit of a revival of interest in Roberta, I guess eventually culminating in the 2015 documentary that I've mentioned a few times. But overall, I feel like Roberta remains a pretty underrecognized piece of transgender history. And certainly something that I was aware of because we did an episode of Michael Dillon, but not like in a big way, I didn't know that much about her. So I'm glad to have learned a bit more in this mm. episode, and I hope you guys feel that way too. Yeah, obviously, you know, her and Michael Dillon are, you know, a very important part of kind of trans medical history, at the absolute least. And then obviously as people, they both mm. are very interesting. And, you know, whilst, yeah, we have been critical of Roberta at times in this episode, as we've also stated at times in this episode, she was dealing with a very tough environment, as trans people continue to deal with today. And she made choices, some of which, you know, are fairly reasonably open to criticism to survive in that situation. Mm. And, like, you know, I'm really happy, as I said earlier, that she was able to live as herself, as a woman, for a significant period of time after, you know, transitioning and then weathering the storm of criticism that came her way when that was portrayed in the press. I was really excited to talk about Roberta because of the episodes on trans history that I've done at least, I've tended to focus on people, with the exception of Michael Dillon, who did not medically transition, either because they lived too early or just because they weren't able to access that. And the conversations we've had in those episodes about trans history have been like quite different mm. and often focused around those questions of, well, how do we prove this is trans? How do we do trans history outside of the very recognized, you know, mainstream accepted to a degree understanding of essentially like the transsexual and it was really interesting to dig back into this with a more thorough sort of bit more analytical look than when we did the episode on Michael so I really enjoyed that it opened up a lot of questions for me about early medical transition you know I sort of mentioned earlier like we have these examples of like the first phalloplasty and I honestly am not sure if Gillies basically like figured out a method of doing a vaginoplasty by himself or if he had heard of other ones or what Mm. but you know obviously after the first someone has the second phalloplasty Mm. and the third and the fourth and the fifth and like Mm. that is the history that I really couldn't find by kind of like googling quickly (laughs) or just trying to dig into it in a bit of a cursory way so I'd really like to look into that in the future so I really enjoyed this for that reason and then also like I agree with essentially everything you just said about Roberta as a complicated figure Mm. who we can nevertheless be happy for Mm. um in that she got to live her life and I, like, I don't say this to excuse any of the things she did that were potentially harmful to other people, mm. but I feel like there were times when the fact that she was such a complicated, messy person, and I feel like this about Michael Dillon as well, just made her seem like so human and so real, and I felt like really, really close to her, even though she would not want me to because I'm trans, <laughs> like <laughs> as a you know as a trans ancestor, effectively. 
Yeah, um, yeah. This episode has definitely made me more emotional than I was expecting. <laughs> Just the fact that she passed away in 2011 as well, like the knowledge that we could have sat and had a cup of tea together. Yeah. Again, she obviously like did not want that. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that's nice. Um, I hadn't planned to include it, but I'd like to actually read you the quote that her memoir ends on now hmm. while we're in like happy gender affirming times. Yeah. <laughs> Roberta ends her memoirs with describing herself getting ready for the first like dance or ball she's going to as a woman and so she kind of gets ready and then she describes herself going into the ball and being nervous but like stealing herself and then she is at the ball and she's dancing and everything is good and she says now I'm dancing and all the blood in my body has turned to music the past is forgotten the future doesn't matter and the glowingly happy present is even better than I had hoped I am myself with that we've been queer as fact my name is eli hi alice i'm jason if you liked this episode you can find us on twitter tumblr facebook as queer as fact or you can contact us directly at queer as fact at gmail.com we also have a website which is queer as fact.com and you can find sources for this episode and links to all our stuff there if you would like to support this podcast financially you can buy our merch on our Redbubble. we're queer as fact or you can support us on Patreon, we're queer as fact. <laughs> Patrons get a variety of rewards depending on how much money they pledge monthly. One of those rewards is to vote on episodes, and this actually was an episode that was voted on by our patrons. So thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed it. Of the three options I put up of like early trans people, this was probably priority number three on my list of those. So I did not expect you to pick it, and... I do not know that much about Roberta and I was not that keen, but I have really, really enjoyed it. So thank you for having more sense than I did. <laughs> Every time I get patrons to vote on something, they never pick what I expect them to. And it's always wild. So it's great. Thank you yeah. very much. And I guess that really, you know, kind of makes it feel like something that is really worth doing. Yeah. If we're getting um, results that we wouldn't have necessarily yeah. picked by ourselves. Yeah. So that's really good to hear. Yeah. You can find more of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever good podcasts are found. And if you do listen to us, especially on Apple Podcasts, but, you know, wherever, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a review and a rating out of five stars. Um, it's really, really important for podcasts to be able to find new listeners and to, like, be bumped up in charts and stuff like that. So if you're looking for a way to support us that is not financial, which is completely understandable, that would be a really good way to do it. We respectfully acknowledge the Yalakut Willem clan of the Bunwarung. We pay our respect to their elders, both past and present, and we acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast was recorded. We'll be back on the 1st of October when Alice will be talking to us about Kapayamahu, a Hawaiian monument to four non-binary healers. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you then. <laughs>